This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Now the reading of God's word. This morning's text is from Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right. One of the first things they teach you in uh, a first-year class of seminary is when preaching on, at Easter to try and find a passage with circumcision in it at least four to five times. And, uh, and I was able to do that this year. I'm really grateful for that. Um, as you might guess from the scripture reading, this is not going to be accused of being a classic uh, resurrection sermon. Uh, in fact, it's not even my goal to preach uh, what might be a classic Easter sermon. Uh, Sometimes at New City, we pick passages on Easter Sunday that line up easier with the topic of resurrection, and sometimes we don't. This is one of those weeks where we chose to keep going uh, in and, in fact, finish our series uh, from the book of Galatians. That said, uh, we will conclude with some thoughts on resurrection and try and give some thought as to how the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection uh, is, in fact, incredibly good news in a life uh, still filled with a lot of hardship and pain and even persecution. So if you're visiting, I just want to apologize. Uh, I did wear the appropriate attire for Easter. Um, A lot of light colors up here. Someone already asked me if they could borrow my blouse. Uh, I said no, um, because it's not mine, and I don't want, well, probably Aaron doesn't want you to wear it. Um, I borrowed it from him. So I, I did this right, but I picked the passage wrong. But I actually, I think, picked the passage that might actually serve you better in the long run if you're visiting. Uh, If you've been with us, uh, you'll see in this, Paul's conclusion to his epistle, uh, you will see a lot of the themes we've been wrestling with for months, and you'll see Paul's final thoughts on those themes. If you're visiting, though, uh, if you're going to pick a passage in the book of Galatians to try and understand the entire book in one passage, you would pick this one. Uh, Again, because Paul uh, takes the pen from the scribe or from the secretary And he, with his own hand, writes in big letters, which means I'm emphasizing this, I'm bold-facing this, I'm underlining this, I'm italicizing this. He says, this is what you really need to know uh, at the end and at the conclusion of this, uh, my first epistle. So again, uh, if you're visiting, uh, I hope that you enjoy the liturgy on the resurrection of Jesus in this sermon, which will allude to it, and then also enjoy, in a way, this summary of the entire book of Galatians. And so as I said, this is Paul's personal conclusion. Verse 11 indicates such. 
So in verses 12 through 18, uh, Paul is putting his final touches on his main points, and he does at least these three things. He exposes his opponent's uh, ultimate motive. Uh, He expresses his ultimate boast, uh, and he invites us uh, to walk by uh, the ultimate rule given in verse 16. Okay, with that being said, if you have your worship folder insert, you're going to have it out. We're going to dig through this passage uh, as we always do. So first, in verses 12 through 13, uh, Paul exposes his opponent's uh, ultimate motive. Now, if you've, if you've been with us, you know that the context for the entire book is conflict. Okay, the book of Galatians was written by Paul because after he planted a handful of churches in the province of southern Galatia, after he planted those churches, false teachers from Jerusalem uh, infiltrated those churches and they attacked Paul's apostleship. They attacked Paul's gospel. Uh, They taught a different gospel, a different message, a different theology, a different way of understanding Jesus. And so within months of Paul leaving Galatia, he writes this, letters, this letter to the churches in Galatia uh, uh, to rebuff the false teachers. And so the context of the entire book is polemic. It, it's theological conflict. It's theoretical debate. If you haven't been with us, it's important for you to understand, in short, uh, that Paul taught that faith in Jesus uh, brought God's blessing and acceptance into a person's life. And that faith uh, plus uh, blessing resulted in increased obedience uh, to God's laws. The false teachers came in behind him and said, no, faith in Jesus is a part of salvation, but you have to obey God starting with circumcision in order to be blessed and accepted and loved and enjoyed by God. So I'll put it on the screen like this if you enjoy uh, a visual. For Paul uh, said that faith alone in Jesus results in God's blessing, which results in increased obedience. But the the false teachers taught uh, that faith in Jesus uh, plus increasing obedience, beginning with circumcision, resulted in God's blessing uh, and acceptance. And so the false teachers taught that God was merciful. Uh, Paul added to that and said, no, God is both merciful and gracious. You can see this in verses 18, uh, excuse me, 16 and 18. The false teachers taught that believing in Jesus uh, could cover our past mistakes, but that we had to obey or perform or get better uh, for God to bless us in the future. And so their theory was mercy for the past, but then works in the present uh, to gain future acceptance and love and adoption into God's family. Paul, on the other hand, did not stop with mercy, but as I said, he preached grace. While mercy is not having to suffer the consequences of the wrong we do, grace is being blessed even though we haven't done anything worthy of blessing. And so Paul says at every moment in your life, you have in Jesus mercy from God for all of your past mistakes. And right now in your life, you're accepted by God, you're loved by God, you're adopted by God into his family, you're promised an incredible future uh, with him uh, forever in resurrection life and the new heavens, and the new earth. And Jesus says, this is yours now because God is not just a God of mercy covering your past. He's a God of grace blessing your future. Also, the false teachers had been teaching that Paul doesn't care about God's law. Paul doesn't care about whether or not we obey. And Paul says, listen, quite the contrary. Verse 15, it's not that I don't desire or call for obedience and increased love in our lives. But I know that works of love can only come from us after we've been unconditionally loved by God's grace. 
Paul says, I know that we can only move forward in obedience after God has moved in and begun to uh, live in us and bear fruit through us. This is the gist of verse 15 if you've been walking along the entire time through Galatians. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. Paul is saying it doesn't matter what you do to the outside of your being. True love and heartfelt obedience only comes from the inside of your being. Paul says you can't obey from the heart to get God's blessing. You need God's blessing to have a new heart. And then once you have a new heart, you're a new creature. You will increasingly love and obey. And so all along throughout the letter, it's been obvious that there is this raging debate. It's been obvious that there are opponents. And you can surmise from what Paul says what his opponents said against him. And as you read verses 12 and 13 of our text, you begin to see that all along, Paul knew his opponent's motive, but waited until right now to give it. This is their motive. It'll be on the screen. Their motive was to avoid persecution. Look at verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only or simply. So Paul's saying, here's the bottom line. In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised, talking about the false teachers, they do not themselves even keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. One of the mistakes that we make when we read Galatians is this we think that the false teachers are the same as the Pharisees, they're not. Think of it this way. Paul had two opponents. He had two enemies in his life and in his ministry. Uh, First, uh, devout Jews, uh, usually Pharisees, uh, they hated Jesus and they hated Paul and they did all they could to kill Paul like they killed Jesus. And so this first enemy of Paul's went after Paul personally and physically attacked him. But Paul's second enemy was a group called the Judaizers, the circumcision party, the false brothers, or the false teachers. They were Jews by birth who called themselves Christians, who didn't keep the law like the Pharisees, verse 13, but taught circumcision and tried to compel Gentiles to be circumcised for the sole purpose of avoiding persecution by the Pharisees, verse 12. And so while the Pharisees sought to, to attack Paul in his person, the false teachers traveled around behind Paul and attacked his teaching. This is huge. This will transform the way you understand Galatians. Paul's opponents put this on the screen. They were not strict Pharisees. They were compromising Christians. His opponents were not radical Jews, but accommodating Christians. You see, this is actually my huge aha moment for the week. I don't think I actually really fully understood this until this week. And when I understood it, it radically changed the way I applied this passage to my own life. Up until this point, I was trying to resonate with the false teachers. And now when I actually understand what's going on, I feel like there's an awful lot for me to learn from what Paul says to the false teachers. Do you remember what Paul was before he became a Christian? Philippians 3, he was a devout and successful and powerful Pharisee. He was a radical Jew. What was Paul uh, doing before he was converted? 
Well, according to Acts chapter 8, the man formerly known as Saul was ravaging the church, dragging men, women, men and women off to prison to persecute them and to bring pain into their life in an effort to get them to recant and to disown Jesus. I mean, literally, where was Saul going when Jesus converted him on the road to Damascus? He was, Acts chapter 9, going to find Christians with letters to arrest them, orders to bind them, instruction to bring them back to Jerusalem to work on their recantation or to stone them. So who were the false teachers, his opponents in Galatians? Not the radical Pharisees that he used to lead who are now trying to kill him. I mean, look again at verse 13. These are not legalists who actually try to keep the law to be saved. Paul said in Philippians 3, they would actually keep the law meticulously in an effort to be saved. Look at verse 12. These are not Pharisees opposed to the cross of Christ. Listen to this. The opponents of Paul are those who want the benefits of Christ without any of the pain and the hardship that inevitably comes in this life when we choose to receive and follow him. They were those who saw themselves as Christians who wanted to change God's word and God's gospel to make their lives easier, to make their lives more comfortable, to make their lives more successful, to make their lives less painful. The false teachers are those who think of themselves as Christians who want to tinker with the Bible, alter the Bible, instead of tinkering with and altering their lives in order to line up their lives to those places in the Bible that are hard and difficult and uncomfortable. To use jargon, they wanted Jesus as a savior, but not a Lord. To use jargon, they wanted a deliverer and not a king. They wanted a four-star general and not a president. Now, you see, I actually think we can resonate with this. When you get to the ultimate motive and the underlying reality of what's going on in the false teachers, I think we can resonate. Up until now, I've been thinking, well, I don't agree with their theology. And while I kind of see how my life reflects their theology instead of Paul's, I'm having a really hard time uh, uh, really understanding them. I, I would never, ever say that my theology is faith plus works equals salvation. And it has been years since I tried to circumcise someone. I used to struggle with it, but I don't struggle with that anymore. And back when I circumcised two people, I never felt compelled to boast in it. (laughs) What can I possibly learn from Paul and how he handles the false teachers? But when Paul says what their motive is, why they traveled to Galatia on a missions trip, why they attacked Paul's authority in his teaching, why they taught faith plus works uh, equal salvation, why they tried to compel the Galatians to be circumcised. Once Paul explains that they did all of that so that they could boast, about the, the, their, boast to their potential persecutors about the conversions of Gentiles they brought into Judaism, once Paul explained that and exposed that in chapter six, I can begin to resonate with that because all along I thought their bad theology was coming from their heart. But now I see that it's the fear of pain and the love of comfort and the need for approval that was in their heart. And so their bad theology was a plan from their brain to accomplish the deep desire of their heart. Said clearly, being motivated to change God's word, being motivated to de-emphasize certain parts of God's word, 
being motivated to ignore parts of God's word so I can be comfortable, not experience pain, not be troubled. I see that as an ongoing struggle in my life. The irony is they went to go and try and convert people because of the context. The irony for me is I'm afraid to try and convert people because of the context. Both of those come from the same heart. You see, at the heart of the matter, at the level of motive, this is why I struggle with evangelism. Not this kind here where I'm getting paid, but the kind that includes my neighbors. I don't want to be seen as the weirdo who tries to proselytize and convert people. I don't want to get rejected and have that feeling of defeat. I don't want to be ostracized and sabotaged in that certain context where I need approval and success to accomplish my agenda. You see, at the heart of the matter, at the level of motive, I think, listen, I don't want to lose friends or be seen as old-fashioned or be known as some conservative, Bible-thumping Christian who's not cool because of his views on, like, let's say, sexuality and marriage. I'm going to not really talk about what God says about who should have sex and about who should be married because that's going to get in the way of my ultimate plan. So instead of tinkering with me when the Bible confronts me, I tinker with the Bible and make it fit my agenda. It's obvious that we don't preach circumcision, but it's also obvious that we're all to some degree false teachers, either by what we say or by what we're not willing to say to be safe, to be comfortable, to be approved, to be liked, to have no one get in the way of our agenda. Can you resonate with that? Paul's opponents were not radical Jews. They were accommodating Christians. And in this context, that meant adding something to Jesus to not be persecuted. We'll come back to that. But for, for now, number two. Second thing from Paul's personal conclusion. Not only does Paul expose his opponent's ultimate motive, but he also expresses again his ultimate boast. So if you look at verse 13, Paul tells the Galatians that his opponents teach circumcision because they want to circumcise the Gentiles so that they can boast in their, that is the Galatians, flesh. The word boast at its root means to brag or to take pride in, usually in a public setting or a public argument. And so we can conclude from verses 12 and 13 that the false teachers wanted to avoid persecution by, quote, boasting to the Pharisees that they had converted Paul's Gentile followers to Judaism. And Paul says in verse 14, using the word boast as a hinge, he says, far be it from me, or literally may it never be, that I brag about or take pride in or boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's his ultimate boast. Now, before I give reflection to this and then continue on in the verse, let's give a little more thought to the Apostle Paul's life and let's think about when he wrote Galatians and when he wrote this verse. This is the theme of the last eight verses in chapter six. The book of Acts, in part, tells the story of Paul's life. It tells the story of how he went from being this radical Pharisee to a radical Christian. It tells the story of Paul hunting, arresting, beating, and stoning Christians to becoming the one who was hunted, arrested, beaten, and stoned for being a Christian. In fact, there's an incredible irony in Galatians. There's this incredible irony in our text. Look at verse 17. 
From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. By marks, he means bruises, wounds, and scars. They don't want to be persecuted. That's why they're preaching circumcision. I will only boast in the cross, and that's why I have scars. Look at chapter 14 of the book of Acts, verses 19 and 20. I hope it's on the screen behind me. If not, just listen in. You need to know that at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is in Lystra or Lystra, and he is planting one of the churches to whom he is now writing. He is planting one of the churches to whom he is now writing. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, I presume that means to pray for him, he rose up and entered the city, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. After Acts 14 happened, what I just read to you, a few months later, Paul is writing the Galatians, the letter we're studying right now, and he says, I still have on my body the marks and the wounds and the scars that happen when an angry mob pelts you with rocks from the size of baseballs to basketballs, and I still have the scratches and the marks and the gouges in my body from being dragged a mile through the desert. I still have the marks. He says, don't give me any more trouble on this topic. A few years later in 2 Corinthians, a good 15 years before he dies, so he has 15 more years of persecution to go. A few years, probably six years after Galatians, he writes a list of persecution that he had experienced to that point in his life for not recanting and for not disowning Jesus. This is in the list. It's in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 8. Many imprisonments, countless beatings, being often near to death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once, Acts 14, I was stoned. Now let's ask a question. I'll put it on the screen. Paul willingly went from the persecutor to the persecuted. How did that happen? Paul had gone from the Pharisee killing Christians to the main Christian the Pharisees tried to kill. Paul, for decades, experienced constant persecution and he never became a false teacher. How did that transformation happen? And this is why it matters to me. Whatever is in my heart at the level of motive, whatever is there motivating me to avoid pain and to love comfort, to avoid conflict and to love approval, whatever is there that leads me to tinker with God's word instead of my agenda, to alter God's word instead of altering my life, whatever is in my heart that keeps me from doing evangelism, whatever is in my heart that keeps me quiet about the doctrines of the Bible that are hard for my context, whatever it is, how does that motive get removed from my heart? Because that's what happened to Paul. How did the transformation happen? I'll put it on the screen. It happened the day Paul's ultimate boast became the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His fundamental identity became the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But far be it from me to boast, brag about, take pride in, find life in, find worth in, find meaning in, find identity in, anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What is Paul saying? He is saying, in short, 
that we will try to find life, meaning, identity, worth in safety and comfort and approval and success and in control until we finally come to the point of finding life and meaning and identity and worth in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that thinking that you can find life by avoiding pain and by avoiding persecution. He says that thinking is an ideal and a value and a thought of this world. And he says at the cross of Christ, the world and its ideas on how to find life was, quote, crucified to me and I to the world. The Greek word for crucify is literally to stake, S-T-A-K-E. It was used in, in two ways. First, it was used uh, to the reference of staking one person into the ground. That's crucifixion. But second, and most likely what's on Paul's mind here, it was used to describe the building or the staking of a fence through putting multiple stakes into the ground. Whatever Paul meant, both are true. The world and its ways are crucified and dying to the Christian. And a separation between Christians and the ways in which the world tries to find life has been established in the cross of Christ. In other words, we don't have to look to the world or think like the world to find life and meaning and identity. Why? Because our ultimate boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What exactly does Paul mean when he says, may it never be that I boast except in Christ? What does he mean when he says, my ultimate boast is the cross of Jesus Christ? Before we get into that, let me just tell you how crazy and ludicrous this sounded to the original audience. It's hard for us to fathom how alarming and how countercultural this would have been for Paul to say this. He is saying my fundamental identity, my fundamental worth in life is that my leader and my king was stripped naked, bloodied, beaten, mocked, spat upon, exposed and stretched out in utter naked shame on the cross. That's my fundamental identity. He's saying my fundamental identity is the day my leader and king died. To say this in the Greco-Roman world was absolutely asinine. It was brainless. It was crazy. In the Jewish culture, this was enragingly offensive for Paul to say, this is my fundamental boast in life. Why did the Jews, especially the Pharisees, persecute Christians? You, we know why they killed Jesus. They killed Jesus because he took people and followers and power from them. They killed Jesus because Jesus wouldn't give them what they wanted, which was an earthly kingdom with Rome gone. But why did they persecute Christians? What does the Bible say? One of the clearest statements on why they persecuted Christians is Galatians 5.11. Paul says this, if I preach circumcision in addition to Jesus, if I preach that you have to be circumcised to be saved, he said, if I would just do that, I wouldn't be persecuted anymore because of the offense or the scandal of the cross would be removed. He says, if I'll just preach the little thing of circumcision in addition to Jesus, I will not be persecuted and the scandal of the cross will be removed. How could adding something like circumcision remove the offense of the cross? Because quite simply, it would be adding something that a human could do. It would mean that I add something to the equation. 
The offense of the cross and the offense of Christianity is this. You, you, you don't have to do and you can't do anything to be saved, to be loved by God, to be adopted into his family. All you can do and all you have to do, and what I mean by that is you actually have to do it. All you can do and all you have to do is receive it, is believe it, is to stand firm in it. And the cross was this utterly offensive reality to the Jews, and it was offensive to all of humanity. It continues to be offensive to humanity today because it tells us how bad we mess things up. It tells us how desperate our condition is. It tells us how lost and how dead and how wrong we are. So lost, so dead, so wrong, only the death of God himself could remedy the situation. And so on the one hand, when Paul says, my ultimate boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I take pride in that which empties me of all my pride. I take pride in that which empties me of all my pride. He is saying, on the one hand, I made such a huge mess of my life. Only the death of the Son of God on the horrific cross could save me. But then on the other hand, he's saying the Son of God loved me so much and the heart of God is so gracious and merciful. Not only did he have to do that for me, he did that for me. He chose that for me. He wanted to die for me. What can keep me from trying to find life in avoiding pain, avoiding discomfort, avoiding persecution? Boasting in the cross of Christ. Seeing that Jesus endured far more persecution, pain, and discomfort than me in order to give me life. What can keep me from trying to find life and having the approval of those around me? Seeing that Jesus endured the shame and the humiliation of the cross to give me the Father's approval. What can keep me from minimizing or tinkering with or altering or ignoring God's word in an effort to gain worth and to gain identity in the world's eyes? Only seeing the worth and the identity that I already have in the only pair of eternal eyes that count. God. What will continually kill off and put distance between me and the world's thoughts in regards to what will make me happy? Only seeing that Jesus wasn't happy with the thought of spending eternity away from me. And so he came and he endured the sadness and the pain of the cross to have me and to have happiness forever. For the joy and the gladness set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. So first, Paul exposes his opponent's ultimate motive. He's like, they just want to avoid pain. And then second, and by the way, I, I could never write that, but you think about Paul's life, he can write that. Second, Paul, he, he expresses his ultimate boast. He said, the, the ultimate boast of my life that helps me to endure pain, that helps me not try and avoid pain, that helps me to even run towards pain, to even rejoice in pain. Paul says all of that about suffering and persecution in his works. What's my boast that causes me to live life that way? The cross of my Lord, Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul invites us to join him in walking by the ultimate rule. Look at verse 16 and verse 18. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, an incredibly ironic word for the book of Galatians, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, peace, mercy, and grace are upon and with, verse 16, all who walk by this rule. What is this rule? Listen to what one commentator writes about it. Paul uses the Greek word for a measuring rod or a measuring ruler. This word was used for the carpenter's line by which direction was taken. Paul is saying this by saying, walk by this rule. He is using the same word as chapter five when he said, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. He is saying, keep in step with, walk forward with, uh, walk forward, excuse me, in line with verses 14 and 15. He is saying, walk straight into this life with the humility that comes from the fact that God had to die for you. But walk straight into this life with the confidence that comes from the fact that he did. Walk straight into this life with the knowledge that the world for you is dying and all of its thoughts and all of its goals and all of its values is dying and being separated from you by the works of Jesus. And then Paul says, walk straight into this life with the knowledge that God has made you a new creature and he lives inside of you. It's just about all Paul taught in the entire uh, book of Galatians. He says, if you do this, peace and mercy and grace will be upon you and with you. And so we've said that mercy is not paying for the bad we do. We've said that grace is benefiting from good that we don't do. What is peace? It's what we get because God is gracious and God is merciful. Actually, our English word for peace, if you'll just stop and think about it for a second, it has a lot of the similarities of the biblical concept of peace, particularly the Old Testament word shalom. For example, we will say that there's, quote, peace between two parties, meaning reconciliation. We will say that we have peace within, meaning that we have an absence of anxiety. We will say that it's a peaceful day after a long, restful day in a natural, beautiful environment. The Bible's one word for our experience of the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible's one word for our experience of resurrection life. The one word that the Bible gives to say all that we will have in the resurrection life is the one word, peace. Connectedness with God, yourself, everyone else, and the natural order. In almost every one of Paul's letters, he takes the pen at the very end and in some way, shape, or form, he says grace and peace. Unmerited favor from God because the one who merited all of his favor went to the cross. Utter shalom forever with that one who went to the cross to have you. Paul ends all of his letters with unconditional love from God and resurrection life in full according to God's timing. And Paul says this is how we can face and not run from. This is how we can endure and even rejoice in persecution. One day when the resurrected Christ returns, his followers will be with him in absolute, unadulterated, utter peace with God, with self, with others, and with nature. 
in heaven, you will know God and you'll know his love for you, the love he has for you now, but you'll actually experience it face to face. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrected life, in peace, you, because God is is just wild about you and you actually believe it and experience it, you will be so at peace within yourself. In the resurrected life, you will only be with family and not family you have tension with or conflict with, but family that wants to serve you and love you and you want to do the same. In the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation will be so beautiful. Jesus says, and Paul both, they say, you can't fathom. You don't have the categories to understand the world that you're going to live in. The absence of tooth and claw, the vibrancy and the flourishing of creation, a creation that will actually worship God. Stones and rocks and trees and waterfalls will worship him with us. And Paul says, you can walk towards the world's definition of life and never have that peace. Or you can boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoy, enjoy pain. Paul says, rejoice in your pain. He says, you can even walk into and rejoice in the pain of this life because you're going to have absolute peace and utter shalom in the future. I think that it is only fair to conclude with this one final thought. That is this. While Paul endured far more persecution than any of us will likely ever experience, Paul also had some experiences that most of us will never have. What do I mean by that? What happened in Paul's life that helped him to boast in the cross, even when it meant stepping into pain? I thought of two, there are more. In Acts chapter nine, at Paul's conversion, it was the resurrected Jesus who confronted him. I mean, think about that. It was the glorious sight of Jesus in his resurrected body that blinded Paul. Second, Paul talks in this very cryptic way in 2 Corinthians about experiences that he's had with Jesus that includes includes realms and places that you and I have never been to. Uh, He talks about this time and these years even where he spends with the resurrected Jesus. And he talks about these places, whatever the third heaven is. He's like, I've been there. And I guarantee you the new heavens and the new earth is a whole lot more like the third heaven than the broken and cursed earth in which we now live. Paul saw the future. He saw the resurrected Jesus and in some sense, the resurrected life. And he had the gall in Romans to say the present sufferings of this life, the present persecutions of this life are momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in the resurrection and the gospel. At the Lord's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. All I am saying is this, that to the extent that we really see what Jesus did for us in the past on the cross, and to the extent that we really believe where he is taking us in the future, we'll struggle an awful lot less with the troubles and the trials and the pains and the losses of this life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your time with us here this morning. We thank you that you've given your spirit to us to hear from you and to see you and to be amazed by you. We thank you that as we see our faithlessness and our unbelief, we thank you that we are swimming in this massive ocean of your grace. We thank you that our ability to see our sin and our failure and our mess is actually a gift from you. And that's because you have covered 
us in all of our sin and shame and you have prepared a place for us and you let us see our mess and our failure so we can see the extravagance and the depth of your love. Jesus, we thank you that you had to be resurrected. We thank you that you came and died and put yourself in the place of needing resurrection because you died for us. Father, we praise you that by the Spirit, you could raise Jesus from the dead, that there is no barrier to your power. God, we praise you that you have caused us to be born to new life, and you will keep us uh, in the faith. You, by your strength, will guard us and not let us go. Would you help us to see what is already ours, uh, that we might live more faithful and fruitful lives in the present? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. 